Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. This is a Virgin Media Originals podcast series. Hello and welcome to The Tonight Show. Housing Minister Dara O'Brien is live in studio to discuss the housing crisis and his controversial shared equity scheme. We'll have reaction from Sinn Féin's Ono Brin and Green Party TD Francis Noel Duffy. Irish Daily Star Chief Sports Writer Kieran Cunningham will bring us up to speed on Ireland's bid with the UK to host the World Cup in 2030. Positive news today as COVID-19 cases see a slight drop with 359 further cases detected. Professor Aoife McLeisett will join us for her reaction. And later, in an era of disinformation, Virgin Media's crime correspondent Sarah O'Connor brings us a special report on the weekend protests that shocked Dublin City. And CNN's Donny O'Sullivan will be live from Washington, D.C. with his reaction. Do get in touch on Twitter, our hashtag tonight's VMTV. Said. Joining me here in studio is Minister for Housing, Local Government and Heritage, Dara O'Brien. Uh, Minister, thank you for coming thank in. You're very welcome thank you. to the programme. I suppose before we talk about housing in particular, this affording affordable housing bill, we need to talk about construction, don't mm -hmm. we? Because 60% of it is closed at the moment. True. I know you'd hoped to be able to reopen it in March. How confident are you now, given the figures, given the positive metrics that come April 5th, construction will reopen. Well, look, I'm hopeful and obviously um, we'll be guided by the public health advice, but the trends are good. Um, you know, the public are making a real effort to suppress the virus. The vaccine rollout is, is, is expediting and, and is, is getting out there amongst our community. House building is, in my view, essential and in the government's view. And the fact that they haven't been able to operate at full capacity is not down to anything the sector have done. It literally was to restrict the movement of people across our country. But obviously the construction shutdown has an impact in how much we can build. We estimate that for every week of, of closure, it's around 800 homes that won't be delivered in, in 2021. But we will catch up and the sector are agile and they're adaptable. I'm meeting with them on a regular basis. Last year we caught up. We have just concluded today actually the final figures on public house building for last year and we'll have attained 73% of target, which is not bad in the year of 2020 when we look at a, a total construction shutdown. So we were able to, in working with the sector, is catch up towards the end of the year. Obviously, this shutdown this year will be longer. It's 14 weeks to the 5th of April. The Taoiseach has indicated that, look, we'll be looking specifically at construction. Uh, we have people out there, I'm sure, watching in who have a matter of weeks left on their houses to be completed. Some public house building is continuing. Some essential works is continuing through it, but the vast majority 
is actually closed right now. In terms of the government's priorities, I know school reopening was number Absolutely. one on the list. Is construction number two on the list? Construction's very much up there. Schools has been our priority and schools are being opened on a phased basis, as we know, that we've children back as of yesterday and other students, you know, uh, in, in leaving search years and then we'll be moving towards the 15th of March. So obviously we're going to watch that as to what impact the movement of people and those additional people going to and from school actually has on the, vi on the virus and the transmission rate of the virus. But thankfully, we're seeing good trends in that regard. We're seeing a, a further reduction in hospitalisation numbers. Mm. We're seeing the positivity rate reduce. I think so we I'm are just trying to get a sense, I suppose, of where the government's looking at all of the things that it could well, relax, where construction I, I, comes. I think the Taoiseach has been clear and government have been clear that we were, we were hoping that we could do something more on construction uh, earlier on this month. That wasn't possible. We followed the public health advice on it. We are focusing very specifically on construction and looking at the house building part in particular. Uh, we need to get back building and delivering homes for our people. Like we've, the research I've done, we need about 33,000 homes per annum. We're not going to, we, we were... We what were are we going to build this year, do you think? Well, it's very difficult to know. Like we were projecting if there was no shutdown, a further increase because we'd built up momentum towards the end of last year to probably around between 23 and 25,000 this year. But I saw now with the Tom shutdown, Barlin at the weekend uh, from the Construction Industry Federation. He said maybe 10,000, 11,000 this it, year. It could, Do you think it could be that low? It could be potentially. And that's where we're looking at the level of this impact. Obviously, in working with the sector, both on the private and the public side, we look to make up lost ground. I've met with our utility companies like Irish Water and ESB and Gas Networks Ireland to make sure that any blockages that are in the system are, are, are removed and that we streamline and focus on, on housing delivery when we get back working. But look, there's no easy way of saying it. The shutdown will have an impact on delivery this year. A lot of sites haven't been open since before Christmas of last year. So when we're looking at what we can, or what we can do this year, we're probably looking at 800 homes a week by 14 weeks. That's the scale of what, of, of what may not be delivered this year. But we, look, we're going to be positive with it. There's things that we can do. So we could do. have about 12,000 houses that we, we want. We could have, but let's think... And the target was 22,000, so yeah, that's where it, that 10,000 figure it comes just, from. It just shows you where, where the challenge is. But if you look at last year, at a certain stage of last year, it was being projected that completions would be as low as 14,000. Now, with some measures that we brought forward in the July stimulus, with the increase in the first-time buyer's grant to 30,000, which did have an impact last year, we ended up with just over 21,000 house completions. And on the public housing side, we've actually managed to hit about 73% of target, which, which was a good outturn. But it does show the challenge that we have going into the future, that it's not business as usual, that we are in a housing crisis that certainly will, you know, be deepened uh, by COVID and by the COVID shutdown. And that's why it's incumbent upon me as Minister for Housing to take additional measures that will boost supply and boost supply and be, and to be able to make sure that people can get the homes that they dearly want and so desire. So you're very much recognising then, Minister, that supply in this market is still it's the biggest issue, is 100%, it? 100%. Always has been, and I've always said that. Supply, so what, what stage, I mean, if you look at your crystal ball now, at what stage are we going to be able to say in this country supply isn't an issue? I saw 2025 being the year um, and yeah, been well, quoted recently. Do you think it's going to take that long, another four years? It could possibly, but I think some of the measures that we could bring forward could expedite that. Obviously, we don't know what the virus will do. And I'm saying it in that context too, that we hope with vaccinations and the you know expediting the vaccination programme, that things will get back to normal later this summer and toward the end of this year. So putting that aside, if one can put a pandemic aside, that when we're looking at what we need to be delivering is about 33,000. So under the revision of the National Development Plan, which we will publish in the middle of this year, we'll be setting out 
our, our new housing targets within that. I'll be launching a housing for all housing plan in July this year. It gives us an opportunity to, to recalibrate our plans, to look at how we can deliver things faster and more reasonable as well, and at a more affordable rate. So there will be catch up. So when you're asking the question, could it be to 2025 before we reach 33,000? Potentially, yes, but, but it's, it's the steps to get to that. We need to have a stable housing system. We, okay. and, and we need to ensure that that supply, which is the key in all of these things, uh, both on the private side and the public side. Like I set, aside, I set apart a housing budget for this year, uh, which will deliver, you know, in 12 months, 12,750 new public homes, more than any government has done in the history of the state. That's backed up with over 2 billion euro in, in, in capital funds and new capital okay, funds. Okay, and I want to talk yeah. I suppose, specifically, because I mentioned there, uh, and I know I could see a smirk when I said a controversial shared equity <laughs> scheme, because you don't agree it is... No, I don't um, believe it's controversial. Controversial. It, it, it's, people are discussing it, and that's a good thing, that affordability is back in the centre of the debate, that home ownership is back in the centre of the debate. And that's what I've always said I wanted to do as Minister, but to deliver on home ownership. For the thousands of people who'll be looking in on this show this evening, who are either renting and paying over the odds and are saving every cent that they want, uh, they can get to actually save for a deposit, I want to help them. And the government wants to help them to be How able to get the home that they, that, that, that they, need, that they want. You mentioned, though, just a little earlier, supply. Supply yes. is the key issue. How does this shared equity scheme actually build supply? number of things. Well, if you look at equivalent schemes, if you look at our nearest neighbour and there's an equivalent scheme which some, some are comparing, uh, the National Audit Office in Britain, which is the equivalent of our controller and Auditor General, so an office that would be well regarded as independent mm. in the scheme that was brought in in England, which won't be the same one as I'm bringing in here, but similar in, in some aspects, led to a 14% increase in supply with less than a 1% increase in house price inflation. There are other measures like with the Land Development Agency bill that will finish this week, that for the first time we'll have a proper land management agency in this country that's going to focus on... OK, but let's just focus using, on this shared well, just equity to say, scheme But we're talking about supply. This will lead, will lead to increased supply, but it is targeted, and let's be straight about it. This isn't a massive shared equity scheme. It's one aspect of four pieces of, of policy within, within the affordable bill. The first one being delivering affordable homes on state-owned land. And that is €310 million euro there. Okay. Some schemes that have been launched, and I want to speed that up on the delivery. And we can do that, deliver about okay, 6,000 affordable just, homes. OK, but let's just yeah, sure. stick at this shared equity scheme because this is the one that's going to be discussed over mm -hmm. the next couple of days because I know Sinn Féin are bringing a private motion. They want the money diverted uh, elsewhere. You say it's going to increase supply. I still don't understand how it will because increase it, supply. It, because what it will do is it will, it will assist in the activation of a lot of planning permissions that actually haven't been activated yet. It'll focus, actually, delivery in the first-time buyer market. That's where I want. And that's where I want people to be able to own their own home. So you think this is going to incentivise builders no, to it, buy for that it, cohort? It, is it, that what you're it, thinking? It will actually help. It will help in delivery and increasing supply. We've just discussed that we're going to be as low, potentially, as about 12,000. We're not going to be able to reach the supply targets that we need by the public sector alone. And anyone who says that to you is just simply not telling you the truth. The private sector and those builders that are there will be there and will be needed to deliver homes. So what this will do will give a lot of people out there who have finance and who don't have the mortgages that they need, will, will allow them to bridge that affordability gap. But this is targeted at them to the tune of 75 million. So we're looking at potentially helping about 2,000 households per annum over the next three years. But it doesn't actually help affordability, I don't it think. It does, yes. 
but it, it bridges the gap. So what you're doing is you're taking people who don't have enough money to buy houses at the current prices and through a government state... scheme, we're, we're, we're coming up to those prices as opposed to doing anything no, no, to was... bring the prices well, down. I, I think I'd say so, some, of, some of those have actually come out and criticised the scheme already are criticising without seeing the checks and balances that I'm bringing in by way of regulation. So there will be regional price caps and there will be caps within the scheme. And we'll also have it targeted particularly at those who need it. So there will be an eligibility test to see, well, what is obviously affordable. This is not making people chase an unaffordable mortgage. This is the state taking an equity piece in someone's house. So if you look at, let's say, if you look at, let's say, our affordable homes on state-owned land, uh, only two weeks ago a scheme launched in my own constituency of Lusk, which has been supported by myself and my department to the tune of about €50,000 per home. That will take an equity stake in that home of up to 20%. In the main, on the shared equity, the difference is it's portable. It will allow that to be used on new homes, you know, across the country within new developments. Another thing I'll be doing as well, Kira, if I could say, which hasn't been mentioned to date, and I'll be confirming it tomorrow in the Dáil, is extending what's called the Part 5 provision. So up to now, every new development, 10% of those homes must be social homes, and I'm going to protect that. But what government wants to do is to extend that to another 10% social. Uh, affordable, excuse me, so that a further 10% of those dwellings would be affordable. Because we've got to realise right now, there is a real issue with okay. people out there who cannot buy their own homes and who can afford to pay for their and own yet, homes. And <laughs> we talk about affordability. I'm looking at this shared equity scheme and some of the commentary that I've seen. Obviously, mm -hmm. you've said the opposition well, um, some have of it, been some critical of, it very of it. predictable, yes. Uh, that might be predictable, yeah. but I don't think people would think the criticisms from the ESRI, who looked at the scheme that you mentioned in the UK and said that it didn't do anything for supply or affordability. In well, fact, it created affordability issues. Yeah. And if you look at the Institute of Professional Auctioneers and Valuers, I have their quote here, they're also saying it's the wrong measure, I well, quote, to drive yeah. development. It's a wrong sort of scheme. It's a grandiose way of getting around the central bank. Well, rules. I disagree with them. And the IPAV, I made contact with them. Uh, the, IPV, the IPAV have not looked at our specific scheme because the specific scheme is not published. If I can go back okay. to the ESRI, because that's important, and I'm glad that you've mentioned that. The ESRI um, made a contribution to the to the Oireachtas Committee on, on, on Housing, uh, and they gave their view on it. But they gave their view on shared equity in general. What they did say during the hearing was that schemes that are properly calibrated and targeted at the right people actually have a lot of benefit. And they were talking specifically on shared equity. Okay. So where so it's targeted at the right people, it will work. And I welcome that input okay. into a scheme because we want to make sure it works. Can I ask you very quickly what's going to sure. happen after April 5th in terms of the uh, eviction ban? Well, what I'm looking right now, April 5th, is a further 10 days after that, OK? So should the five kilometres be lifted, mm. the blanket eviction ban is removed. There's other legislation that I have in place, which is the Residential Tenancies Amendment Act that is also in place and will run into April. And right now I'm working with the with, with government and the attorney to extend that further into the middle of this year. So I would so expect... perhaps the end of June? Well, I'm expecting, I'm, I'm hoping to get... Um, approval to be able to st extend the protections that I brought in last year up to July this year. Oh, well, and I've said, the rent freeze. Well, for those particular people who declare and have, who self-declare and that's worked very well, 
that their income has been affected by COVID or they've lost their job as well. And it's been a decent protection. It hasn't been the only thing. What I would say as well is let's remember, right. thankfully only 2% of our tenancies end okay. in dispute, but we'll do everything we can to protect tenants during the pandemic. All right, uh, Minister Darbrain, thank you for coming You're in welcome. and speaking thank to you. us this evening. Well, the other uh, big news and a lovely distraction from all of the COVID talk, I have to say, over the last year was the news today that Ireland is going to join the UK and bid for the World Cup in 2013. I'm joined now by the Irish Daily Star's chief sports writer, Kieran Cunningham. Kieran, I don't know about you, maybe it was just because it was non-COVID, but I was quite uh, excited about this news. Can we dream? Is this realistic? And what role could Ireland potentially play? Well, um, you, you can argue that it's, you know, it's definitely a distraction from COVID, but uh, a lot, it has taken a lot of people by surprise who work within sport and who cover sport here, because this story has been around since 2018. So it's not a new story. What's new is that Boris Johnson, on the eve of the project of the UK, has started pushing it um, again. But it was Theresa May, who first mooted this a few years ago. There's been lots of discussions over the last few years. You know, there was even talk of the first game uh, possibly being fixed for Coke Park as a sweetener for Ireland being part of it. You know, it is a runner. Like, it's a long way. Like, there's a long way to go before anybody could talk about a World Cup games taking place in Ireland. Because you're likely have a joint bid between Spain and Portugal. You're likely have a strong South American bid involved in four countries, an East European bid, and probably a joint North African bid. But, uh, but England have bid quite a few times in the past, twice in the recent past, and they've done really badly. Mm. So I think the reason why we spread it out is there's quite a lot of anti-English feeling out there among uh, other countries who vote. And they think... You know, so that you the think Celtic we might accents, be brought along to improve their image? Is that it, Kieran? Yeah, yeah. I think the Celtic accents might sweeten the pill for, for some of the potential voters. But Boris Johnson has to be very careful with his language. It's funny enough, Sebastian Coe plays such a great role in bringing the London Olympics, uh, getting the London Olympics um, for England in 2012. He said he has to stop saying football's coming home. When England got to the last World Cup, this was uh, all over social media, especially. And when Croatia beat them in the semi-final, they said that really got to them, this thing about football's coming home. And to many, it sums up English arrogance. And if they want to win friends, they have to stop this thing about football's coming home. But, you know, a lot of it has been overblown. And if this bid is successful, it's going to be a Dublin bid. You know, it's good, you know, it's fanciful to say you're going to have games in Cork or Limerick or Galway or whatever. The Aviva will be used to Coke Park for right. years. It will be a much expanded World Cup, 48 teams, and there'll be no guarantee Ireland will go five teams involved, so all the hosts might automatically qualify. And perhaps we could qualify some other way. Maybe we could just qualify in our football. I'm not quite sure what the rules are around that. I just want to ask you, though, Kieran, about the other story uh, dominating um, the sports news bulletins today, and that's uh, Gordon Elliott and the investigation into the photograph of uh, Gordon Elliott sitting on a dead horse and another video um, in the uh, news today of a jockey sitting on a dead horse in a completely separate incident. How damaging is it to, I suppose, Gordon Elliott's reputation, but how damaging is it to the whole industry? Well, it's very damaging because of what it, come, it follows on from, because this has been a very difficult year for, uh, for horse racing. Because, first of all, the Cheltenham Festival went ahead when there was a lot of opposition to it going ahead because COVID was starting to spread big time in the UK. 
and the large crowds there went down like a lead given what happened very shortly afterwards. Then you've had some very high profile doping cases that haven't been dealt with particularly well by the authorities by any means. And then you have this, these incidents now, like the, the, the one with the jockey was a five-year-old video, but it only came to light today. But it's very damaging with Gordon Elliott because he's such a, a prominent figure in in the sport, and you know he's already lost some of his some of his um, the, 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 some of the horses have been taken away from him today. He's lost a sponsorship deal. But sport, horse racing is a very different sport, and the government is always treated very differently in terms of funding because effectively it's seen as an industry as much as a sport because it employs so many people. So I think even though when this investigation comes to an end there will probably be a hefty suspension for Gordon Elliott. I don't think he'll be kicked out of the sport because it is, he is a significant employer. All right. OK, uh, we're going to have to leave it there. But Kieran Cunningham, uh, thank you for your time this evening. And my thanks also to Housing Minister Dara O'Brien for joining me here in studio. Lots more reaction to our housing discussion after the break with Sinn Féin TD Owen O'Brien and Green Party TD Francis Noel Duffy and a special report on the weekend's protests from our crime correspondent. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Very welcome back. Well, Sinn Féin's housing spokesperson, Owen O'Brien, and the Green Party housing spokesperson, Francis Noel Duffy, join me now here in studio. You're both very welcome to the programme. I'm going to start with you, um, Francis, because your colleagues, Nasa Hurricane and Patrick Costello, do not support this shared equity scheme and want the funding, the £75 million diverted elsewhere. Do you support the scheme? Uh, well, the party technically doesn't. It's, it's not part of our policy. So... Um, we don't necessarily support it, but it, but the scheme is is a suite of measures to, uh, to deal with uh, housing uh, affordability. So um, the big measure that we've got in this bill is cost rental, uh, and that we see being rolled out over the next number of years is where you will begin to bring down rental costs. And um, so, um, so it's a compromise, is it, for the Green well, it's, Party? It's a coalition of three parties, and um, you know, in the negotiations last year, you know, I can take the example that we, we wanted the abolition of uh, co-living, and that wasn't in part of the PFG, yeah. but it's now gone. So, you know, um, I suppose in in the context of the scheme, it's a scheme that you know is part of the the, the government coalition's um, program. But so in terms of the cost rental that you have secured. How many cost rental homes are going to be provided for at this point? 
in this year it'll be 440 is my understanding that's that's the start of the rollout it, it is a pilot scheme it's a pilot scheme isn't it's a pilot it? so last week a committee you know i would have um asked the question of the rsi um nesc and the housing agency you know how many should we be rolling out and you know their advice is 2000 minimum and beyond that and that that's what we need to get to so because it's it's the first time the state is is working on this type of um rental you know housing model um, the 400 units is the start. It was over a subscri subscribe this year, double the su subscriptions look for. So you'd so hope it's going to be rolled out further? Big time. Uh, Owner Bryn, just listening to the Minister there, I know you were listening to mm -hmm. him. I know Sinn Féin is going to try and oppose um, the shared equity scheme, but the Minister said, look, I've heard people's concerns, I've heard what the ESRI has to say, etc., etc. You haven't seen the details of the scheme yet, and we are putting in provisions to ensure that it is, you know, targeted and doesn't lead to, you know, developers pushing up prices. Do you accept that? No, not, not only do I not accept it, but almost anybody who has any knowledge or expertise of how these schemes work doesn't accept it either. So, so let's be very clear. The origin of this scheme was to uh, lobby papers produced by two large lobbyists for the property industry. And I know that because I met with them, as did Dara and others, uh, when they were coming to sell their wares uh, uh, last year. Uh, it doesn't have the kinds of checks and balances that, that Dara has outlined. So, for example, there will be no income cap on applying for uh, uh, the fund. The uh, price caps in Dublin. But he said, in fairness, that that's just an arbitrary income, you know, cap. Sure, but, but what they will but, do is ensure that there are other measures in place to ensure but, that affordability for whoever applies to the scheme is told an us, issue. He's told us what the cap in Dublin is, which is four hundred thousand euros. That's not affordable. And the difficulty is, is that what will happen here is not only do we know it will push up house prices in London, for example, a comparable scheme in England pushed up house prices by six percent. Mm. What we'll also then see is that working people will be saddled with unsustainable and high-risk levels of debt because there's also an interest charge. There is also in negotiations with the banks to double the amount of money available for this scheme for this year from 75 million to 150 million. And look, anybody who's commented on it, from Robert Watt, the former Secretary General of the Department of Public Expenditure, said developers want this because it'll push up prices. ESRI and the Central Bank, and exactly as you said, the Institute of Professional Valuers and Auctioneers. And our problem is as follows. House price or housing policy should focus on driving down the cost of prices. And there is. He would say, look, <coughs> this is 75 million within a 2 billion scheme. There are many other schemes within that that are going but to there drive isn't, there isn't down two, there isn't two uh, billion, costs and increase supply. No, because there isn't 2 billion being spent on affordable housing. So, for example, the cost rental scheme that Francis talks about, which both of our parties have been arguing for for years, and it's not a pilot, the pilot started in 2016. Okay. He's only spending 35 million on that this year. Darrell O'Brien sought 200 to 300 million from government for this loan. He has said on record before that he wants to expand it to cover uh, 40,000 households. This is the okay. worst kind of developer-led Celtic Tiger scheme that will push up prices, saddle working people with debt, okay. scrap the scheme and put the money exactly into the kind of cost rental or local authority affordable delivery where you're driving down the price of houses so that working people can buy homes at really affordable prices, not saddling them with unsustainable debt. Um, well, I'm just going to leave it there for the minute because a short while ago I spoke to Professor Aoife McLeisett and asked her about the site drop in COVID-19 cases detected in Ireland today and some of the concerns surrounding construction reopening. Here's what she had to say. Well, it's always good to see the numbers coming down. I think everybody's happy to see that. I think the next step is just to see that it's a trend that continues and it's not just one day. Um, there is a bit of an effect sometimes of the weekend and fewer people are going for testing at the weekend. But let's hope that it's not that and that it's, it is getting better. And there are positive signs around the country. You know, there's some counties with very low numbers 
And one thing we do see is it's not the same picture over the whole country. You know, Dublin is very high, but then Kerry and Cork are doing well. Kilkenny had zero cases today, and so did Leitrim. So there's a positive news there, but um, Dublin is still quite troubling in that the aura value is quite high. It's about 0.9, we estimate. And, um, you know, that is worrying because it's on a bit on a knife edge in terms of there not being much scope at the moment to uh, to relax things, unfortunately, um, without you know serious consequences. So um, that while it is really good to see low numbers, and we all want to see that, unfortunately, um, there's still a bit of a way to go. And um, I think there's more that needs to be done specifically by the government um, to make this lockdown more effective so that it can be shorter, because we all want to get out of lockdown. And um, some of the things they could be doing around supported isolation, for example, so that people who need to isolate really have a place that they can isolate. We know there are lots of adults in shared accommodation, and um, this means that workplace outbreaks become household outbreaks that become a workplace outbreak in a different workplace. And these are chains of transmission that need to be broken. So if, uh, if you say there's not much scope then to relax things, would you have concerns about the conversation we're having here this evening about construction reopening uh, on April 5th? I have concerns about anything frankly, at the moment, just because it is so finely balanced, um, in, especially in Dublin. And um, there would be concerns that um, anything that needs, anything that is done will have to be done extremely safely and there have to be practices in place. Um, I don't know, uh, you know, one construction site can be different from another. But I mean, one of the things that would really have to be looked at there would be the break times. You know, I think um, while they're actually working, uh, it's probably reasonably safe. But then the break times and the transport oh, to right. and from work are areas that could be quite concerning. All right, we'll leave it there. But Professor Eve McGlyce, thank you for your time as always. Thank you. And we heard there um, when we were speaking to the minister that construction seems to be pretty high up there in the government's list of priorities. And we saw that from Leo Vradker in his letter to the parliamentary party yesterday. Do you support construction being reopened come the 5th of April if we stay in this current trajectory, Francis? I, I think from, from my experience in the profession, I think that the, the construction sector have you know, implemented all the measures that they need to do to work on site safely. Um, um, I, I think if... if the numbers come down in the right way between now and then. Yes, I think we should be going back to build, like essentially. But, would, but if it's would you agree, Owen? Well, look, we all want construction back uh, as quickly as possible, both for the large residential units and for the small self-builders. The problem, however, is is if we relax uh, the restrictions uh, too soon after the numbers are brought down, they're going to go back up again. And that's our experience from the two uh, probably premature exits from the lockdown. So in the first instance, we have to be guided by the public health advice. But there is more government could be doing to ensure that when we get those case numbers down, we can keep them down. So, for example... So you wouldn't, as it stands, do you think, Sinn Féin wouldn't think support I, it reopening <clears throat> on the 5th of April? No, no, I think it's, 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 it's maybe the wrong way to look at it. Not only do we need to get the case numbers down, but we need to ensure that our testing and tracing regime is sufficient to keep it down. We need to strengthen the, ma the mandatory quarantining, for example, for international travel to keep it down. And we also need to have routine serial and testing in all workplaces. And if that's not done, places. you wouldn't open it. And I think if all of that is in place, uh, and if the public health advice is it is now safe to reopen, then I think we can reopen. But, but there's no point of speculating. we need to have a more targeted <coughs> approach, I wonder, because listening to Aoife McLeish there, she's saying, look, somewhere like Kerry, numbers are really low. Somewhere like Dublin, numbers are problematic. In, and yet we want to open the whole country at the same time. In, in, in such a small country, 
Or is that not feasible? In, in such a small country, virus transmissions can shift very quickly from low to high in certain counties, and we've seen that before. What I'm saying is, is rather than give people arbitrary dates, what we need to do is give people metrics in terms of okay. case numbers, but crucially the infrastructure to keep the virus suppressed and let people get back to work, particularly in construction, safely. But that has to be guided by government intervention, uh, 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 government measures and the Neffet Public Health Advice. All right, we're going to have to leave it there, but my thanks to Francis Noel. Duffy Owen will be staying with us. And after the break, a special report from crime correspondent Sarah O'Connor on the weekend's protests in Dublin and CNN's Donny O'Sullivan joins us live with reaction to those pro uh, protests from Washington. DC. Welcome back. Well, Gardaí have stepped up security planning for more anti-lockdown protests after last weekend's violence at a protest in Dublin. A number of people have been before the courts in connection with the incident and tonight Gardaí are still questioning a 30-year-old man in connection with a firework attack on Garda officers at the demonstration on Saturday. He's been questioned under laws normally associated with gangland or terrorism-related offences. Our crime correspondent Sarah O'Connor has been examining the security issues raised by the protest amid fears of further tensions at a similar event planned in the coming week. Here's her special investigation for The Tonight Show. The general consensus is that the demonstrators who turned up in their hundreds in Dublin city centre on Saturday were not guided by one group or view in particular. It was a mishmash of disparate groups who gathered to voice their discontent and opposition to lockdown, to the Gardaí, to the vaccines, to masks. The protest was largely organised on social media. The group Rise Up Erin invited people along to take action peacefully for what they described as a social gathering to create solutions to ending lockdown. The demonstration, however, seems to have been infiltrated by a more sinister element intent on ramping it up a gear with intimidation and violence. Irish Times reporter Rona McGreevy was there from the outset. Well, I've, I've covered quite a few of these anti-lockdown protests in the past and generally speaking, whether you agree or disagree with them, they've been well organised, they've been proper protests, there have been platforms, there are speakers, you know who's organising it, you know, it's, it's pretty transparent. Um, this one wasn't, this one was very covertly organised. It was simply uh, an opportunity for people to come here, gather here on Saturday afternoon, and vent their spleen about the lockdown at the Gardaí. It started at about two o'clock and it started getting rowdier and rowdier and rowdier and then the, the bottles started coming over. Firstly, it was plastic bottles, then it was uh, uh, glass bottles and then there was at least three or four fireworks went off and the, the police dogs started barking. Once they charged the crowd, they, they took the, the heat out of the situation, but it was very hairy here for about five or six minutes. It was a strong sort of nationalist uh, uh, bent to it all. There's a lot of Irish flags, a lot of the Irish Republic flags, a lot of the Aero Gabra flags, and um, you know, which are harmless enough symbols, but they are they have been kind of hijacked by the far right in this country as well. Gardaí were aware that this protest was happening and was gathering momentum in terms of numbers. According to Angartha Siakona, the policing operation initially involved 125 officers from various units, including the Public Order Unit. Gartha management has been criticised over the lack of backup on the day. Rank-and-file officers and the association representing sergeants and inspectors will meet with the Garda Commissioner tomorrow to discuss what happened. You take those figures as being the figures, 
then the resources deployed were not sufficient. I didn't see, and I could be wrong because it may have been somewhere else, I didn't see public order units deployed on the video that I viewed from, uh, from Saturday. And they're easily distinguishable because they will wear helmets, protective gear and equipment, they will have transport and so on. So the learning point rather than the criticism point is, let's not do it this way again. What they'll need to ensure is that they have the proper structures in place, first and foremost, at strategic, tactical and operational uh, level. And then they'll have to put sufficient resources in place to deal with it appropriately so that a proper graduated response uh, can be actioned. And that means having sufficient guardy on the ground. Officers continue to monitor social media and anticipate further protests in the capital, particularly around St. Patrick's Day. A demonstration is planned for Cork City Centre on Saturday afternoon, organised by the People's Convention, which has been liaising with the Gardaí. The group has condemned the violence at Saturday's protest in Dublin, warning any like-minded people to stay away from this weekend's event. They should not come anywhere near us and they should not have in their heads to go attacking the Gardaí. Such a thing will be an outrage. Um, this is a peaceful event. If people can't appreciate that, they have no business attending. People are coming here because they want to express a demand for proper public health care and a demand that they hear the truth about the dangers of this virus, which is real. We're not, we're not virus deniers, um, but we want to put things in our proper context and have a complete health service which addresses all the illnesses, not simply one. 23 people were arrested following the protest on Saturday. 13 of them were brought before a special sitting of the District Court on Saturday night, charged under the Public Order Act. A 24th arrest was made today. A man in his 30s suspected of instigating that firework attack on Garthi on Saturday using the cannon launcher. He was brought here to Irish Town Station in Dublin 4 for questioning under Section 30 of the Offences Against the State Act. He can be held for up to 72 hours. Well, CNN reporter Doni O'Sullivan joins us live now from Washington, D.C. Doni, delighted to speak to you. I think a lot of us were taken aback by the protests uh, here at the weekend, by some of the wild conspiracy theories that were maybe being put forward by some of the more sinister uh, elements of those protests. Tell me, from your own reporting in the United States, what role is disinformation and these conspiracy theories having on American life, on American politics, and indeed in the recent election. Yeah, Kira. I think you could see that you know from from when, when terms in terms of what happened here uh, in the United States on January sixth with that insurrection. That was an insurrection at the U.S. Capitol, which in many ways was based built on misinformation, disinformation, built uh, on a lie that the election uh, had been in some way um, stolen. Um, and of course, you know, I think uh, we as Irish people will sometimes have a habit, perhaps, of looking at the United States and saying, oh my God, that stuff is, is crazy over there. It will never happen here. But of course, with social media, you know, all that sort of the rot, really, the sort of conspiracy theories and the disinformation, the stuff that we see online here can very, very quickly spread uh, to Ireland and to all over um, the world. And, you know, that is what we have been seeing spreading at a, at a quicker rate um, and getting more traction and more pickup, particularly since the start of the COVID lockdowns. Why? 
Why? Because, you know, we are living right now, of course, in unprecedented times. People are out of work. People have a lot more time on their hands. People have a lot more time uh, online. And people are looking for answers to very difficult questions. There is so much anxiety and concern about what is happening uh, right now. And that is how, you know, con conspiracy theories like QAnon, of course, uh, offer answers to uh, very difficult questions, quite appealing answers. How has social media and their platforms sort of amplified? I I've lost sound, guys. Um, Can you hear me there, Donny? Kira, I can't hear you. You can't hear moment. me at the moment. Okay, we'll try and uh, re-establish sound there. I'm just going to go to um, my guest in studio here. We have uh, Shane Creevy from Kinzen and Owen O'Brien. Um, Owen, listening to uh, that report there, there was a peaceful element, uh, it appears, and then there's a more sinister element. Uh, is it quite difficult to you know, to segregate those two because they're all coming under this banner of a far-right uh, movement that we should be frightened of? Yeah, we have to be very careful in the language that we use when we're talking about the protests. There's sadly this conflation of different types of protests happening. So we have people who have anti-lockdown, anti-mask uh, sentiments. Then you've got another group of people who are virulently anti-vaccine. But then you've also people who are vaccine hesitant, who aren't quite sure. They have questions, they want answers. And then you obviously have political extremists, people who are looking for a fight, people who are looking to egg on the Guardi as well, and that's another group. I think it's um, uh, too simplistic to say that everybody was there under one rubric. It was a very uh, mixed group of people. All right. um, but they're coming at it from very different perspectives, um, but clearly all pretty upset. Um, I want to go back to Donny. I think we have re-established a connection. Donny, <coughs> I was just asking you how social media platforms have you know, amplified these groups and what those platforms have done to try and tackle this misinformation. Yeah, I mean, look, uh, Kira, clearly not enough, right? I mean, you know, we can all see this on our social media feeds all over the place. You can go on Facebook and uh, YouTube every day and find this sort of stuff, you know, very dangerous misinformation about masks, mis misinformation, of course, about the vaccines, and then all sort of, you know, I think a lot of people might have read in the Sunday Times this weekend, uh, really dark conspiracy theories about prominent people in Irish life who are um, allegedly, you know, pedophiles and, and, and drink the blood of children and all this sort of stuff. These are very crazy conspiracy theories, but there's nothing actually original about them. The same thing has been being said about um, democratic politicians and members of the media here in the US, particularly over the past year uh, with this conspiracy theory QAnon. And, you know, you could see reporters in Ireland like Brian Mahan with the, with the Sunday Times. He's been reporting on this for about six months, a year. He has stories almost every, every few weeks saying, here's how many misinformation groups. Here's how many groups spreading hate or dangerous disinformation that is supposed to be banned from Facebook. He can find them easily. And Facebook only takes action on those pages then uh, when a journalist brings it to their attention. So they are clearly uh, failing uh, their users and they're clearly failing the Irish people. Donny, I'm just wondering what you think of um, some of the tweets that I saw at the weekend where people were saying, look, this was a handful of people, there was only a couple of thousand at the protest, there was only a handful, you know, who were spouting those wild conspiracy theories that you talk about, only a handful involved in any level of violence, we shouldn't overstate this, the far right isn't flourishing in this country. What do you make of that? Are we you know, underestimating their prevalence? Are we not taking it seriously enough? Or do you agree, look, it's just a small uh, section of society, don't worry about them? 
Yeah, well, I mean, this is how it all begins, I guess. I mean, for every person that might have shown up and spouted those things and, uh, you know, said said those various conspiracy theories out loud, there's possibly hundreds, if not thousands, of other Irish people who are reading this stuff every day and who are consuming it and who might be buying into it. Um, and it only takes a very small segment of the population uh, to believe in this stuff and to become radicalised to have disastrous consequences like we saw here uh, in the United States on January 6th. And yes, of course, there is that argument to be made. There's always going to be scumbags, right? There's going to be guys who are looking for any reason uh, to fire a firework into the face of Angarda Shiakana. Um, but what these conspiracies do is they give people like that cover. They give people like that cover to blend in uh, to a crowd, and they, it gives them a cause as such. Um, and then also, of course, there is the risk of radicalizing uh, regular people. I mean, one a good example, I guess, is, is the vaccine. People have, you know, legitimate questions, maybe concerns about the vaccine. The problem with if you go searching information about the vaccine now, you can so, so, so quickly be drawn in to these rabbit holes of disinformation uh, about the vaccine and all sort of conspiracy theories like Bill Gates has put a microchip in the vaccine as is one of the more crazier ends of it, but dangerous misinformation. And then once you're in that space, that's when you can start being exposed to very far-right views, very racist inf information, uh, racist uh, points of view. Um, so it really is quite a dark uh, rabbit hole. And as, as I pointed out, um, you know, social media platforms clearly uh, are not doing enough about this. And very quickly and briefly, if you don't mind, Donny, what lessons can we learn from what's happened in the United States? Um, I mean, I, I guess it is to, to don't let it uh, get out of hand. I mean, you don't want uh, happening in Ireland uh, what is happening here, um, where, you know, a legitimacy has been given to so many of these bad faith actors uh, and they have been able to build up uh, humongous audiences uh, based on hate and based on uh, disinformation. So it's the sort of thing to nip in the bud. Uh, Donny O'Sullivan, really uh, appreciate your time. Thanks so much for speaking to us. And just uh, to go back to you, Shane, what can we do here in this country? I mean, we have a number of these major social media platforms with headquarters in Dublin. We should, you would think, be able to have direct access to them. What is the government expected and actually able to do? It's a difficult challenge. Uh, <coughs> disinformation is not a simple problem that we can tackle with a simplistic solution. And in fact, um, the motto in Silicon Valley over the years was move fast and break things. If we do that now with disinformation, there will be unintended consequences that could be far worse than what we expect, what we're going through right now. So there's a number of solutions that we should be looking at. Media literacy is a part of that. That's not just in the classrooms for young children. That's also the Be Media Smart campaign, for example, from Media Literacy Ireland, to, to talk to people who are listening to, you know, radio, who are watching TV. It doesn't just mean that we are, are talking to, to young people. We can talk to older people too. There's fact-checking. We should be looking at how we support quality media in the, in, the, in the country. We should be thinking about regulation, but thinking about it very carefully. There are authoritarian regimes like in Egypt and 
um, the Philippines that are going to use fake news laws to tackle and uh, beat out a free press, and that will cause even more problems. There's technological solutions we should be looking at too. So I there talk are about solutions this. out they there. They are, but we need them all working together, okay. reinforcing each other. Okay, I just want to other. ask uh, Owen very quickly, what should the Gardaí do about this weekend's protest planned in Dublin and Cork? Well, first of all, before, before we talk about the Gardaí, what the government does need to do is to regulate. Now, I agree that has to be done in the right way, but uh, our, our problem on social media present is it's completely unregulated. And okay, people can just, sorry, we're just no, but, going to run but, out of time here, so I want just to focus on what's going to happen this it, weekend, if you is, don't mind, Owen. Is, is for Leo Varadkar simply to write to Facebook to ask them uh, to moderate better when, in fact, the government should legislate to regulate? You should not be able to do things on social media platforms that you can't do on this television programme or in newsprint. They should be treated as publishers. I suppose what I would urge, first of all, anybody who is going out protesting uh, uh, this weekend, and people have a right to protest even when we don't agree with them, do it in compliance with public health and safety guidelines. Uh, don't allow your protest to be hijacked by a, a significant section of a growing far right uh, and engage with oh. the Gardaí so that we don't have a repeat of those scenes. But government needs to act okay. and regulate and legislate to deal with this problem, not write soft right, letters to, 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 to chief executives of social there. media uh, Thanks to all of my guests. The next news bulletin will be here at 7am on Ireland AM. And Matt Cooper will be back here tomorrow night at 10. Until then, good night and do stay safe. This is a Virgin Media Originals podcast series. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.